VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is on vacation as we speak. Well, you know, I don't know why I didn't mention this yesterday, but this had a uh, pretty profound impact on me personally. I was remiss in uh, not acknowledging the passing of David Blackwood. And um, David Blackwood's work, if you're familiar with it, is so iconic, so specific to Newfoundland and more specifically Wesleyville. And if you've ever visited Bonavista North, it's absolutely imbued with that... um, marine history, that long, long line of uh, respected uh, sealing uh, captains over the years. And um, it, it struck me um, that there are only two pieces of artwork, and I am a, um, I guess I'm an artist by trade. Is that how they put that? (laughs) I studied painting and drawing in university. This was supposed to be my um, uh, direction in life, uh, but of course economics got in the way. Um, So I am familiar with art history. I'm familiar with art. I'm familiar with artists and, uh, and the work that they do. And there's only two pieces of artwork that have ever solicited enough emotion out of me to make me cry. One of them is Guernica by Pablo Picasso, and you may be familiar with that one. It's black and white, it's very stark. And if you know anything of the history uh, about Guernica and what happened there during the Second World War, you know, um, or the Spanish Civil War, I should say, you you know just how um, impactful that piece is. So when I saw Guernica for the first time, I cried. And the other piece of artwork that made me cry was by David Blackwood. And I saw the print because uh, David Blackwood was primarily a print printmaker, etchings, and that's a long and laborious process. It's very technical, and yet he is able to evoke these these memories, these emotions. And I remember looking at this uh, particular print at the Emma Butler Gallery a few years ago, um, and you'll know it, you'll probably know it. The image is iconic. There's a punt among the pans of ice, and you can see out to the horizon. It's very, the whole landscape is empty and and the boat is empty. And then when your eye casts to the side and it shows you the the title of the work, it's Brian and Martin Windsor. And as soon as I saw that, I started to choke up and become visibly upset, like I started to cry. (laughs) I actually started to cry. And there was somebody in the gallery next to me, a stranger, I don't know who they were. They were from away somewhere, I'm guessing Ontario. and, And they looked at me and they said, are you crying? What, I don't understand, why would this picture made you cry, make you cry? And I just turned to, the, it was, happened to be a woman, and I said, they're gone. Brian and Martin Windsor are gone. <laughs> and it really, really affected me. Um, so that spoke to me about the power of Newfoundland history and culture 
and what makes this place special. And I think, to a large extent, uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who go away have a much stronger sense of that than those who stay here, similar to people from uh, Ireland, for instance. You see people who leave Ireland and come here, and they say, well, this place is more Irish than Ireland because Ireland has moved. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's evolved, we'll say. You know, it's changed from where it is here, which was the last, you know, it goes back a couple hundred years or whatever the case may be. Same thing with the West Country in England and, and other places. And same thing in Quebec. When you go to Quebec, you see f- people from France who go over to Quebec and they're like, wow, you guys speak like a really old form of French. Um, because that's where that starting point was, if you know what I'm saying. So it really spoke to me, and, and David Blackwood's work really encapsulates that, you know, with with mummers and codfish and uh, shed doors and the like, and these magical, mysterious memories of people who we used to call aunt and uncle, if you know what I'm saying, who have these impactful Um, meaningful um, impacts on our lives. Anyway, so uh, devastating loss there, David Blackwood, and uh, to his family and friends, um, we've really lost uh, a a powerful, powerful artist in him, but so many works to remember him by. this is the season. <laughs> Did you see some of the RCMP um, releases, I guess, that were issued yesterday? Uh, they advised, uh, issued some advisories yesterday about a number of recent incidents involving ATVs and dirt bikes in the province. And um, in one, unfortunately, a young man was very serious, very seriously injured. And you can, I guess, attribute that in part to the hijinks of youth. But... The others involve people who really should know better. And there was one that really stuck out. And when, uh, when people started hearing it, I, I had a few people remark to me, can you believe this? Uh, there was a, a case, I think, on the Port of Port Peninsula, Ship Cove, if I'm not mistaken, where a man in his 40s was charged after driving a side-by-side. Now, you picture a side-by-side. They're not exactly built for speed. He was driving 113 kilometers per hour through a community on a side-by-side. Just imagine. I mean, that's a problem. <laughs> anyway, the our RCMP took the vehicle off the road, and uh, the driver is now facing uh, charges, or at least a ticket for that. Um, but anyway, if you see any uh, bad behavior on the roads, let us know. Uh, the income supplement and seniors benefit are up 10% today, but uh, the problem, and I've spoken to seniors advocates in the past, and I'd like to hear from more today, if at all possible. The problem here is uh, that not everybody is eligible. And the question has been raised before, should the eligibility criteria change? Well, the cost of living is such that the poverty line, of course, is higher than it once was. It's, and sometimes you think these numbers are randomly chosen, and they don't really change, do they? The poverty line is amount, right? Well, the cost of living has gone up so dramatically, and yet that poverty line has remained the same, and yet you have all of these people who aren't, aren't eligible for these benefits who are struggling. They're really struggling. 
And, and we've heard about, in particular, we've heard from, about seniors who have had to make the, the choice between heat or food, or gassing up the car and heat, or whatever the case may be. And it's, it's a real struggle. And I can tell you that when the gas prices are scheduled to change, which is usually on Thursdays, as we know, that's changed quite dramatically in the last little while. Sometimes it'll be a Tuesday, sometimes a Saturday. But um, traditionally, in, uh, since uh, regulated gas prices came into play, um, it's been Thursdays. And the newsroom, I can tell you, is inundated with calls on Wednesdays from people wondering whether or not they should gas up their car now or wait till tomorrow. And of course, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We just go by the best gas price predictors. And God bless his heart, uh, George Murphy was very good at that. And now we're um, uh, getting them from... Um, Dan McTague on the mainland. And it's a tricky business, you know. But we can't say for certain. We don't know. And just the simple fact that so many people call because they need to know if they should put in $20 today or if they can hold out till tomorrow or if they got to fill up their oil tank today or wait another week. And these are serious decisions that people are making and trying to figure out. If you have any thoughts on that, give us a call. I see another emergency room temporarily closed. That was a topic of uh, much discussion yesterday, and uh, we can certainly continue to have those conversations today. This situation involving the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but we're talking registered nurses and others, is having a real impact and we're feeling it and there's some areas of the province that are feeling it more than others but everyone is feeling it uh, i'd like to hear what you have to say about that well booster shots so we have this dichotomy david we have this dichotomy where mandates are dropping left right and center and i see nova scotia now is moving from the mask mandate where it's uh highly recommended to uh, you know, your choice, basically. Um, it's up to you. And I, I'm, I'm one of those people that still wears it from time to time, although I'm starting to get a little bit looser with it now. But I'm one of those people that still wears it. Um, it depends on the circumstances. And I hear a lot of people saying the same thing. Other people are like, no, nah, I don't care anymore. Um, but so we have these lifting of mandates and that sort of thing happening of course the summer months and people are outside and windows are open and all those things and air is circulating and we're not stuck inside if you know what I mean you're all breathing the same recirculated air but um, we have this shadow looming and I see that the WHO and NASI among other groups now emphasizing the importance, I saw a recent article out of uh, the BBC in the UK, uh, similarly doctors there, all emphasizing the importance of updated boosters, getting them out and getting them in people's arms before the fall season begins in anticipation of another COVID surge and the possibility of more variants. And they're very concerned about this. So on the one hand, we have, you know, everything is 
getting back to somewhat normal. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we have things coming back to somewhat normal. And on the other side, we have the scientists, the doctors saying, let's get our ducks in a row before we're onto a new school season. We're into the fall of the year. Those windows start closing. People start going indoors again. We have to get something done here. So we haven't heard much about that. Uh, I'm putting it out there in case we can get any kind of real answers as to whether or not any updated boosters will be available. And boosters and uh, the vaccine, uh, apparently, according to uh, the doctors, doing a great job at keeping people from getting seriously ill from this virus because it's still out there and it's going to be with us for a very long time to come. Well, talking about getting back to normal, and we talked about it a bit about this yesterday, but I'd like to hear from uh, people. The nightmare continues. I heard uh, Brenda O'Reilly from Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador expressing some real concern that the mess that is the airline industry right now could have an impact on come home year celebrations. This was supposed to be the big boost to tourism in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Uh, we were talking about um, hospitality, Newfoundland and Labrador, and some of the tribal nightmares and whether or not that's going to impact come home year celebrations. I'd like to hear anybody involved in come home year celebrations and see if they're seeing any kind of an impact or if they're hearing anything from visitors about uh, some of the travel woes out there. And rental vehicles, still a problem. Um, I noticed a story not too long ago, CBC was running it, um, where a couple of sisters came down and actually rented one of those big <laughs> moving type vans and went around the province that way. And they said it was great because they had lots of room to store stuff. <laughs> that's how bad it is. I'm laughing, but that's how bad it can be in some areas. So if anybody's encountered any trouble with that, they're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're going to start the show this morning with uh, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Linda. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty well. How are you doing? Good, good. I want to start off with with a question on, on I know you you let off with uh, scientists, doctors warning about the fall, and also of course we have the overlying medical services issues, and 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 I just I don't understand why we're not focusing more on being healthier. I mean, can it, individuals can't control the variants. We obviously can't control how many doctors there are in the province, but we can control the food and substances we put in our bodies and in our families' bodies and how active we are. Absolutely. I just want to keep that message out there. And I don't understand why that's not driven home with every radio ad that the province spends money on, because that is the number one thing we can all do to weather this COVID and as well help with our health care challenges. And, I mean, the recent health accord, the, the primary focus of the entire health accord was the, the social determinants of health. Because, let's be honest, if you are um, watching your income or on a very limited income, you're going to choose one type of beverage over another. You're going to choose one type of food over another. Whatever is economical can get you through the week. And you're not necessarily thinking about what are the health impacts of this. Well, you know, and one of the other challenges, a lot of people focus on how much food is in their cart and, and not necessarily the nutritional quality of what's in your cart. I mean, eating vegetables are, is is not as expensive as buying processed foods and definitely on, on, from a nutritional point of view and also calorie for calorie and, and as well beef, which is got the, you know, is very expensive, obviously, but also is a very high uh, 
carbon footprint. So, you know, well, yeah, people, it has a big can, environmental impact. It does. So, you know, people can can still be healthy. I mean, you know, the dandelions are always out there during the spring, summer, and fall. I know a lot of people don't even realize how healthy they are, but one of the best things you can possibly eat, and and they're free. And I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't mind you knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, can I, can I uh, weed your garden and take those dandelions home and cook them up?" Anyway, uh, I, I want to talk about uh, set the tone for a talk today about uh, you know just reminding everyone that public sector unions uh, tend to uh, refer to the employers, but when they're negotiating, but to remind everybody that we are the employers. In the case of the province, any raises we give, every single penny is borrowed when it comes to raises. And when it comes to the cities and the municipalities, any raises will result in increased taxes to people. And a lot of those people who you spoke about in your preamble who live on fixed incomes, um, those people will – any any raises get passed along to people who own homes or who even rent because the landlords, if they face increased costs, then they will just pass it along to their tenants. So I want to start that, you know, the employers are the taxpayers. Whenever you're dealing with any public sector union, there's no magic employers. It's not Eastern Health. It's not, the, the, you know, it's not the city of St. John's. It's not the public transit union. It is us, the taxpayers, who are the employers. So so we just uh, very quietly, um, the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1462 last Sunday voted, but there was on, on a collective agreement. Um, there's no results given of the vote, nor, but I think we would have heard about it by now. That's not Sunday past, but two Sundays ago. The union was recommending acceptance. So, we, you know, we can we can assume that there is a very favorable term. So that would be the first union to sign a collective agreement within the city of St. John's. So you can assume that that will get passed right along to all the other unions as, as a template. I mean, yeah. not, not necessarily identical to it, but, but obviously they're very, very pleased with it. And, and just remind everybody that that the city of St. John's employees are not in that category of people who are who are really really um, in the lower end of the spectrum. Um, if you look at the managers and counselors, there's 196 of them, and on average they make 109k. And if you go if you expand it out to the payroll, and it's difficult to get these numbers because it's not that that payroll information is very very uh, well hidden within the budgets of the city of St. John's. However, it, I estimate it's around 139 million. There's 12, 1,200 employees, so on average, every employee costs around 115,000. That doesn't mean that's what they take home. Obviously, there's a, there's a span. And since 2007, um, those bargaining units, and 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 also the other thing a lot of people probably aren't aware of is that in the case of governments, municipal and provincial, uh, any raises that go to lower levels also goes right up through all managers. Um, not necessarily the elected officials, but all managers see the same raises. So since 2007, um, QP Local 569 has had a 50% raise, 1269, 45% raise, and the firefighters a 70.76 raise. And and something similar between those three numbers is what trickled up to the managers. So when you look at our city manager, who, for example, makes $234,000, if he receives a five percent raise, that's eleven thousand six hundred fifty dollars. And and I, you know, if you make a hundred grand, five percent raise is is five thousand dollars more. So you know, and then the city of St. John's, of course, is facing a lot of challenges. The price of fuel significant. They've already been uh, 
you know, out publicly talking about that. Price of electricity, it will be going up. And everything else that the city purchases, just like us as individuals, will be going up. So so any raises that are that are given or um, any investments that are made in, in, in uh, human resources will result in more taxes for all of us. And it's very easy for them to get be able to get it without even raising the mill rate because, as a lot of people are aware, the value of our homes have been appreciating. But appreciation of an asset is only valuable if you want to either borrow against it, and of course you know what's happening with interest rates, or if you want to sell it. And a lot of people, if they sold their home, people especially on fixed incomes would uh, would not be able to afford to secure new housing, nor could they then transfer over to renting because A, there's a shortage of real estate to rent, and B, the prices of real estate have gone up. So you know, the tale of two cities is the difference between the city of Mount Pearl and the city of St. John. And it's interesting how we hear almost no counselors or the mayor uh, on on your show at all. It's been really – they've been really, really absent other than to talk about minor announcements. And, uh, you know, in, in this in this environment where right now they are negotiating with all their unions um, – and generally, it's pretty well common practice for a council to give raises the year after an election. And and so the tale of two cities is most likely to say St. John's is in the process of getting generous raises while QP has come out in Mount Pearl and they're having demonstrations and they're and they're complaining that the city of Mount Pearl, who 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 did by the way, did no tax increases in 2022 as opposed to the city of St. John's, and they've and the mayor has come out. And I want to applaud his his, uh, his courage and his leadership uh, that they're going to they're going to absorb increases by making savings in areas, and they're determined to insulate residents and businesses from tax increases as much as possible. If things become too difficult, they will take a serious look at the budget and re and re uh, and balance everything. So so they're apparently according to QP, they're demanding major concessions. In their contract, and 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 QP saying they're attacking their benefits, which were fairly negotiated in previous rounds of bargaining, and offering a very small wage increase that will not come close to offsetting the cost of living. So, so what you know, is the solution then? What do I mean? You you seem to be suggesting that Mount Pearl is taking the the better attack here, but uh, by the same token, I mean you know public service unions like anyone else uh, are uh, talking about the cost of living. If even if you make a, a large salary, that's still representative of maybe the mortgage that you're paying, which is higher now because of interest rates increasing. If you know what I'm saying, so um, uh, who's taking the better attack? Well, I mean, ultimately, the challenge really comes down to who should be the primary beneficiaries of someone's work or someone's life output. Um, you know, if if we have to borrow, in the case of the province, to increase compensation, then that means that both us and our and future generations have to somehow magically pay pay that. Which, which, given the way things are going, that's probably not realistic. In the case of municipalities, we're going to have to pay. So, so if you look at who is the primary beneficiary of my work, or, or if I'm a retired person, how do I balance my payments? Well, then that's just the reality. I mean, we're talking about people who, on average, make 12% more apples to apples, even in in the case of unionization and education, than their peers in the private sector. But then, if you then strip away unionization, um, then the, the 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 gap is even greater, and that doesn't take into account pensions and benefits, and all you know, all the paid holidays and and uh, 
and as well sick sick benefits that come along with it. So so it's one of these situations where the other the other thing we have to realize is everything is everything is linked. So more income allows people to be able to afford larger vehicles and the ability to not make conservation choices. Like, you know, from a public policy point of view, carbon tax, which of course not very popular, but as Patty keeps reminding people, Stephen Harper was a big fan of carbon taxes because the only way you can really control people's behavior, you can preach at them and you can advertise and try and brainwash them, but it's not a very effective way or scare them. Those things don't generally work. The best way to, to change people's behavior is for it to be economically motivated. So, so if you pay people more, they won't adjust their their behavior. And we have a big challenge in Newfoundland and Labrador because we have we are the highest emitters of carbon in the country and in and actually in the continent. And and most of, and all the G8. Newfoundland as as jurisdiction is only maybe like five or six countries in the world, and they're all very very uh, wasteful uh, that that produce more carbon than we do. So so that's the first thing is is we're going to pay people more money so they can afford to not make conservation choices. Um, that also gives them the ability to travel. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the category that we're talking about travel, and uh, you know, I know a lot of people love to travel. I was a huge traveler before I woke up to the reality of climate change and the impact of travel on climate change. And, and the other thing is when, when you give people enough money to travel, then they obviously – the money leaves the local economy. And food and lifestyle choices, quads, side-by-sides, and beef, the things we already talked about earlier, like, like people don't really want to hear. But we have to figure out a way to cut – in Newfoundland Labrador, we have to cut our greenhouse – we have to cut our greenhouse emissions by 80% to get down to uh, – by 2050. Or cut them by like 60 50 60% by – 2035 like this is major and and people don't seem to want to do it on their own so when i sit back and say well i'm going to pay more money in taxes so that people can afford to um live lifestyles that are not sustainable and are destroying the world um and our climate like these are all the difficult things you have to do you have to make and and that's you know that's how i approach all this stuff is we're not talking about whether they can put food on their table um you know that's not the conversation we're having Right. Tom, we'll leave it there, but uh, a lot of food for thought there, uh, pardon the pun. Thanks so so much. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. That's Tom Davis. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the cut to the Gulf Cod fishery and uh, other things coming up right after this. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. And Irene has been waiting on the line. Uh, Hello, Irene. Hi, Linda. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm calling about my situation. Okay, what's that then? I'm a woman who's 51-year-old, and I'm living in a shelter, and I just left an abusive relationship. And my opinion, like for people like us, uh, people like other women just in relationships just after leaving abusive relationships, I find there's no help for people like us, and I'm trying to re, 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 re tell, I'm trying to re, I can't pronounce the word, my life, like I'm trying to. Right, you're trying to get back on your feet. Feet, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what what kind of uh, support are you talking about? What what do you see in your situation okay. that would be helpful to you that, you, that you're simply not like, availing this of? I'm, this is what I'm finding. The problem is no one wants to rent to anyone on social assistance, that's what I find. And everyone wants credit checks. And I've been on welfare my whole life. And there's a housing crunch. This is an article that I read. So people are aware of the crisis in housing in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
I didn't think at the age of 51 that I would be homeless with nowhere to turn, and I feel like there's no help. And if anyone is listening and there's a different route that I can try to help myself, I will. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't party. I don't have any animals. I just want a place to lay my head at night. And even when I do, I still got a long road ahead of me with counseling and stuff. Do you have youngsters? Uh, No, I don't. So it's just yourself and you're looking for a place to stay and you say people are reluctant to um, rent to people on social assistance? That's what I find, yeah, when it comes to, like, I've been doing the work, I've been in the paper, like, looking online, like, online, now, that's a big thing for me, because back in my day, like, I'm not really good with uh, computers and stuff, and back in the day, there was a newspaper, like, and you got to have money for the newspaper. And, like, I hear so you. Uh, I was so saying much. the same thing the other day, you know, uh, being of a certain age, I said, you know, last time I went looking for an apartment, it was in the newspaper, <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't even know where to look anymore, so where do you look? Well, I've been trying to get uh, the technology, like trying to understand it, because like I'm old school, and like trying to get on the computer and stuff like and like I'm no good for that. Like I'm really old school. Like back in my day, it was a newspaper. You know what I mean? But I've been online looking, yeah, and I find like the people out there do not do not want to take anyone in social assistance. And yeah. what about uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing or the city housing? I'm not sure where you are. Uh, all, I find like there's a big housing crisis here in Newfoundland, and I guess the people in Newfoundland are aware of that. You know what I mean? Like, I read an article in the paper that, uh, for an example, like city housing, like they're having a big housing crunch or something that was in the paper. Right. Yeah, there's, there yeah. has been a little bit of a, a crunch, I think, in the um, the private um uh, apartment side of things yeah, uh, like, I don't know about housing itself maybe we can get somebody from the city to talk a little bit about that I actually put okay. in calls to the city last week uh, looking for some updates on that because I know some time ago the city was looking at uh, they had quite a few um, rental places that were open yeah. I don't know if that's still the case now no. or not I've been calling uh, apartment buildings and they're all full like it's really hard to get somewhere in the city to, to call home, you know what I mean? Yes, for certain. So um, it, uh, you've tried several routes. What about your MHA? Uh, that was my next, uh, that's my next route, but I don't know who it is because I'm in the West End. Okay, West End, probably Siobhan Cody or Tom Osborne, one of the two? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, Tom Osborne's more Waterford Valley, Siobhan Cody more Cowan Heights. Okay. Um, or Jim Din okay. is uh, in through central, like uh, Mundy Pond kind of area. Okay. Um, so e- any one of those uh, three MHAs will be able to, um, I'm sure they've got, uh, you know, people on lists and they have lists yes. of uh, available apartments and those kinds of things. I'm sure they do this kind of thing all the time. If you c- call the appropriate MHA, then um, that should help you out. Yes, that was my next route, actually, MHA, but I didn't know, like, who the person was or where to find this person, and you know what I mean? Right. Well, if you're in the West End, St. John's is probably one of those three. Okay. And I'm, I'm not going to get into where you are because you just left no. an abusive relationship, yeah. but it's it, it's one of those three, Siobhan Cody, uh, Tom Osborne, or Jim Din, most likely. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, my dear. You, uh, you. good luck with all of that. And if uh, uh, Dave's got your number, if anybody happens to have an apartment opening and they want to share that with us and hook the two of you up, then uh, we'll do that as well. Thank you so much. All right. Best of luck to you. 
Thanks. Bye. We're going to go now to Jason Spingle with the FFAW. Hello, Jason. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? All right. I see that uh, Joyce Murray has closed the Gulf cod fishery. Yes, Minister Murray, when she started out, made you know made these comments at a at a at a forum, fisheries forum in in the Maritimes, about leaving more fish in the water, and uh, you know it was a bit uh, dr- very dramatic statements, and we reacted to those. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like some of them are are coming to fruition. And uh, you know, here for you know, I've been needless to say intimately involved for for uh, well over twenty years with. Uh, this stock of fish and from all capacities uh and you know saw the ups and downs i guess as as over those years and you know i think it's acknowledged that uh there's been some concerns and but we had a through the through the process had a a a total allowable catch for the last several years of a thousand tons and it was well understood that that basically was uh, an index fishery, and it was a point whereby if there was going to be, you know, we can get into the debate on more positive or more negative uh, views of the stock, I guess, science being more more negative, uh, uh, harvesters being more positive overall, and, you know, some people would say that's always the trend, but I don't think it's always the case. Um, but at a very low level, and harvesters were willing, certainly willing to work with that. And no one had any inkling before this particular minister that um, this thousand tons would be reduced. I mean, basically what we're talking about there is a, a small amount that really, really, uh, in in the even in the science models that I've seen, has no bearing on whether the stock will. Uh, re, you know, recover and increase, right? Very low, low catch. And the bottom line is to do this now is unnecessary to to stop directed fishing. And all it does, quite frankly, all it does, it doesn't address the main issues of natural mortality uh, through uh, seal predation, gray seal predation in particular. And uh, And then the other issue is, look, I've talked to several harvesters since this decision came out and what i can tell you is is that the minister has gone and taken the connection to like we're all here because of cod right there's an intimate connection with cod you know all about it and uh, you know I, I just talked to one harvester this morning yes he's done well on lobster right but the hurt in his voice that he basically is not going to be able to catch a little bit of cod now you know there is more to life than money right and all the minister has done here is done nothing to address the recovery of this stock and has just um, taken a big chunk uh, out of the, uh, you know, yes, it's economically important too, but out of the uh, out of our communities here. And that, that doesn't only include fish harvesters. It includes everyone in rural communities, whether it's the Port of Chois or the, or the Burnt Islands or, or, or the, or the Lancelous or the Green Island Coves. It doesn't matter. This is going to make for a sadder season and uh, was unnecessary. So, uh, you know, what I would say is this. Look, uh, <laughs> we all make decisions that aren't the best ones. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'll put it out there. I do it quite often. Uh, some people might might <laughs> latch on to that. But I don't think anyone uh, makes all the best decisions all the time. And we gave the minister, we gave her... Contact some reasonable options here. There's still some there, 
And I don't think there's any... Um, well, I guess what I would put out to the minister and her, and her people is that, look, we need to meet, we need to discuss this, and we need to look at something that's more reasonable here. Um, and that's what I would say, uh, Linda. It's a very, very difficult decision, and uh, it's an unnecessary one, most See, importantly, and it's it's not really going to help. It's just going to hurt. So. so you say this this came as a complete surprise. How many harvesters involved in the Gulf Cod fishery? We have 700 in, uh, so you have uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, you have 700 groundfish license holders. And then in Quebec, you probably have three or 400. I don't know the exact numbers in Quebec. Like the North Shore, I grew up in the Labrador Straits. Of course, we're right next to the people in Blanc-Sablon, that area. I mean, just as intimately involved in, in COD. In our press release, we use, uh, uh, you know, Paul Nado as director with the association there. You know, we, we all, we're all on the same page here. So it's going to hurt those harvesters just as much as it's going to hurt ours, right? Uh, so, but you know, there's not uh, lobster. Thankfully, has been good, and there ha- in the last several seasons, some crab. Uh, but it, so it hasn't been. I'm not going to say that all those 700 are dependent on cod, and not all of them are even fishing. But we we have well over 200, and a lot of those depend on the bit of cod. And like I say, I can't overstate the connection to the resource and. Uh, and losing that is, is just is just not a positive thing, right? And final point I would say is, look, we've been at meetings, the Gulf Groundfish Advisory, with our counterparts from Prince Edward Island, Cape Breton, who've seen the gray seals. Uh, the science even acknowledges they literally take fish right out of their nets. I mean, they can't even set herring nets in the daytime because schools of gray seals will come and take the fish right out of the nets. There's no fin fish left in shallow water. Uh, um, in the southern Gulf anymore because the gray seals have them all consumed. The argument could be made, though, that the reason why they cut um, total allowable catches or cut fisheries is that that that's the area over which they have control. And if the fish are depleting, how do you control the depletion except to remove the removals, if you know what I'm saying? So, like... You know, I don't. The, the recreational fisheries there, that's still there. So there's still some removals. There's still some bycatch. People are still on the water. I guess we had a small scale fishery where the minimal amount of landings was recorded. And to take that away is, you know, I guess that's the argument. But uh, I would say is that. Um, is probably you know it's just the, the amount of catch is just not significant enough to to have an impact on what we had there. In are the, you, in are the you satisfied with, with with some of this um, final, I suppose, uh, acknowledgement to a certain extent is uh, the seal populations are having on the fish? And we talked to Gus Echikeri last week, and he said, you know, be, pr- pr- prior to the moratorium, seal predation wasn't really an issue because the fish were relatively plentiful. Now they're not so plentiful so seal predation has become a big problem well I think uh, I, so uh, are you are you are you satisfied i suppose that uh, the federal government seems to finally be acknowledging that seals might be an issue here and that they'll be addressing that in some way Agno- acknowledgement is a first step 
uh, in any in any issue. Uh, so you know, we can't say we had to we had to say that we're you know we're pleased to have that they had that acknowledgement. But I just wanted to say, so we've seen our counterparts and get to the point. Uh, Red Island is right off the Port of Port Peninsula, right off of ma- uh, mainland Three Rock Cove. There's a big island. Uh, I have a harvester there uh, that does the Sentinel. You know, and up till 10 years ago, there was no seals on that island, basically 10 years ago. And now it's peppered with gray seals. Uh, that same fisherman, commercial sentinel, used to catch excellent catches of large cod. Now it's basically nothing, and the small fishy catches are full of worms, which are connected to the gray seals. So that's just a prime example of what we're seeing there. And uh, like I say, so... Um, I think, you know, I really appreciate your question. And, yep, absolutely, if you don't catch a fish, you could say he's there tomorrow, but uh, it's there tomorrow. But when you're talking about four or 500 tons of catch, we're probably going to have that in bycatch anyway. Uh, but now we're just taking, removing that connection is what I would say. And uh, that's, 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 that's just, it's just difficult. And uh, the hurt in people's voices is, is there and is real. And uh, I can only state it for what it is. And I guess the plan for rebuilding of the cod fishery, which 30 years on, hasn't really materialized. No, we can say it hasn't. So, you know, um, I guess we get, we have to keep moving forward. We just didn't think this was the direction we were going to take. We thought we were at a level, a very, very low level, where we could continue to all try to work together and and address issues like seals. But, uh, I, you know, I really believe that with this decision, uh, we haven't we haven't really put ourselves forward. That's what I would say. So, Jason, I appreciate your call this morning. Uh, we have to take a break. I really appreciate this. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for the time, and uh, we'll see. You know, like I said, we're going to request a meeting with Minister Murray and her team, and hopefully, we can we can work something out here that's uh, that's more positive. I would say. Great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. And we'll be back right after this. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, and we're going now to Craig Party, the MHA for Bonavista. Hello. Hello, Linda. How are you today? I am good, and good morning to you, and thank you for taking my call. No problem at all. So your emergency is down again. Yes, and I just wanted to take the opportunity to voice, come on the air and voice the concern of the residents of the Bonavista area on those two issues. One is the health care and the other being the roads. But obviously the greatest priority and um, in the residents would be the closure of the eMERGE department. Uh, last Tuesday, we had um, a public meeting at the, the Garrick Theater. Um, uh, I would like to recognize, I said, the three people who, who initiated and planned it and have been advocates for health care in the local area for decades. Eliza Swires, Reg Dirtle, and Gail Brown. Um, packed audience. Uh, Eastern House was uh, well represented there, but we heard the concerns and we heard the efforts that were ongoing in, in staffing the emergency department at, at Bonavista. Um, w- when we look at different areas of the province, uh, Linda, we look at data lots of times as to what the priority ought to be when we look at regions of, of service. And I think that uh, even in the health accord, the plan going forward uh, depends a lot on looking at data in order to make informed decisions. And one thing about Bonavista that the um, the quality of care NL, um, the practice points, which is um, uh, much data on health care that's compiled and led by uh, Dr. Parfrey, 
Uh, in its uh, 2021 edition, Volume 8, it gives the, the visitation at the Bonavista Hospital is close to 11,000 visits. Uh, it also gives the, the scale of the urgency of those visits at the Bonavista Hospital. Uh, they use the Canadian triage acuity scale, which was referenced at the meeting last Tuesday. Uh, level one to level five. Level four, level five uh, ought to be seen by your family physician. Level one, level two being the greatest priority. Level one being resuscitation, level two being emergent. There, there's, there's a big issue with it, i.e. Um, heart failure. There are 156 cases that were seen at the Emerge Department in Bonavista in, as reported in the, the 2021 edition. Uh, and another fact that would be in that data would say that of all the regions in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we are the second greatest region with the highest proportion of persons greater than 65 years of age. And we come second behind the Western Avalon. So when I look at the data, and I state that uh, whenever that department is closed, it is a great concern because the data reflects that there is a great need in the Bonavista area. And I know we're not unique. The only thing that we would impress upon government is that we ought to be prioritized because, again, the data would indicate that we are indeed a, a priority. And, of course, if you have a, a broken leg or a chest pain, um, the drive to Clarenville is a, a fair distance. Yes, it is. And remember, when we're talking about these, these levels, uh, Linda, level one resuscitation, that means you need to be stabilized before ever, ever transport, at, stabilized as soon as possible. Or, again, literally, you're unconscious and you need to be, be brought back into a conscious state. Uh, an hour and a half is, an, is a really uh, concerning uh, trip that would be if you would be falling into level one without the use of um, Bonavista Emerge to be to be stabilized. So again, the data would speak that we do have the need. The distance is great. Um, fortunate that summertime, but you can only imagine, and we know what the weather conditions we would have in the in the winter. So we do acknowledge the challenge. But we would like to see the government to come out to say you are prioritized because the data would suggest that we need to make sure that we've got the emergency room staffed at, at Bonavista Hospital. Craig Prouty, you haven't even spoken about roads yet, uh, nope. although you alluded to it. Uh, we're up to news time now. Do you, do you mind holding through news and we'll come back and talk about the roads as well? No, I would, would like to do that. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. All right. You hang in there and we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is on vacation. And uh, before the break, we were talking to Craig Party about um, the situation involving uh, health care in the region. And uh, Craig, um, Mayor John Norman raised some pretty serious concerns about this. Uh, this has been gone going for some time. It has. It has, Linda. And, and there's a lot of issues. Uh, I've always contended that sometimes you look forward, not back. I think there will be a period of time where we can look at some missteps that we've had, that we've taken along the way, uh, that would have co helped contribute to where we are locally. Um, but like I said, we need now to have our ultimate focus, all players, on remediating, remediating the situation that we currently have in the, in the Bonavista and in the province. And uh, that's where our focus needs to be. I just want to share one thing with you, Linda, on, on, on that. I was talking to Fred Cuff at the memorial service 
on Friday. And Fred Cuff was a member of the local board back when we had local boards that looked after the, the health care system. And they were involved with the recruiting and the retention. And it was tremendous, and I would think local participation that staffed our hospital. We always had our, our um, emergency department that was in, in operation, but I'm sure it was challenging, as he, as he stated it was. I'm not sure how much local participation we have now in the recruitment and the retention. And I know that the Health Accord does talk about these regional councils. So uh, I would think that would be one misstep, is that we lost our regional identity. We're not staffing now. Nobody is, is looking after filling our um, hospital, uh, staffing it in our catchment area. So our catchment area is but a little over 8,000 people. Uh, not including the myriad of, of tourists that we would have in our area over the, the, the tourism season, but we don't have anybody locally that's involved directly in that pursuit. So I'm sure that's one thing that we, we ought to have learned from and adjust rather quickly provincially. What about seasonal residents? Because Bonavista, of course, is uh, really grown in in recent years and um uh has been very successful in drawing people especially young families to the area um are they seasonal residents or are they year-round do you have a large seasonal resident population well we have eight thousand people that would be uh, year-round that i wish to service um area you're you're correctly right is that on the um on the bonavis plancha we have a lot of seasonal uh my understanding, Linda, they wouldn't be included in the in the 8,000. But I know that I just had the uh, the manager of the Bonavista Crafts um, in my office last week, and we talked about uh, the tourism. And she mentioned about the, the vast number of people in the Bonavista Lighthouse, you know, coming down to visit the Bonavista Lighthouse. She said, really busy. So I did look at the tourism. In fact, I reached out to find out what the data was in comparison. So in 2018, prior to the to the pandemic, uh, Bonavista Lighthouse saw 31,468 visitors. Signal Hill, at the same time, in 2018, uh, sorry, uh, saw 35,756. So when we look at population base, yes, we have over 8,000. If you add on those who are seasonal, and if you add in the tourists, we've got a significant population on the Bonavista Peninsula. And today and tomorrow, they go without access to uh, an emergency room. So, again, the goal of the call and the voice of the residents would be the fact that um, it ought to be prioritized and whatever efforts can be made to make sure that we have coverage down there, I think, ought to be. Now, roads. Roads. I presented twice, two petitions, one in April and one in May, on the, I, I refer to them as the destructive potholes, Linda, on the bottom of the peninsula. And as you are well aware, we've got Route 230, which will bring you straight down on the, the Trinity Bay side. And we've got the wonderfully scenic Route of 235 that will bring you up on the bottom of the bay side <clears throat> in our peninsula. My contention and the contention of the, the, uh, the petition that was, um, that was presented in the House was the fact that if you have had a, an identified pothole that may be 8 to 10 inches deep below that are causing damage to vehicles, either the government needs to repair it in a reasonable period of time or they ought to be liable for it. Now, that was the bottom line. What the reasonable period of time would be, Linda, 
I'm not sure. But I knew that I was presenting the petitions on behalf of the residents before hot asphalt was available. So there was a little bit of leverage that was given during that time to say, well, hot asphalt wasn't available in, in um, you know, on, in April and May the 11th when I presented the second petition. But it sure is now that when we have some of those same potholes that are still causing damage to people's vehicles on these two major routes, and we just talked about the, the number of tourists that are on the bottom of the peninsula, which we don't need data for. I think we can see visuals of. Uh, I think that is inexcusable. And we're not talking about more money. We're, you know, I'm not here saying that we need to pump in more money. We have the human resources that are there. What would take them away from the priority of fixing these damaging potholes on these major routes? I don't know. And I'm at a loss. And I haven't had the answer from the inquiries that I've made. So I'm what would sure. be a reasonable amount of time? A day, two days, a week? Well, if you would ask the residents, I would think they, they figure 24 to 48 hours. And in, in, the, in the petition uh, debate that we had, um, there was one gentleman, Larry Holloway, in Musgrave Town, who got a work experience with the highways, had stated that every gray truck that drives over every kilometer of the road in the district of Bonavista, if they came across one of those potholes that they had that was damaging and probably reported to have several vehicles damaged on that pothole, even if at that time, before the hot asphalt was available, a couple of shovelfuls of Class A would be deposited in the hole to make sure that there was going to be no more damages from people traveling on our major routes. I thought that was more than reasonable. And in fact, I included that in the two two petitions that I, I had added in the, in the chance I had to speak on the petition. So I would think a couple of days we ought to have had the whole addressed. And surely, goodness, when the hot asphalt is, is available, and keep in mind now we're in July the 5th, Linda, July the 5th we're in, and we still have several of those potholes that have not been addressed on our major routes. And I just don't, you know, I, I don't know, and I know in, in the years that I've seen, it's never been this long that we've had potholes that have been unaddressed in a come-home year, and you know, and the traveling public, um, yeah, really inexcusable. Craig Party, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. Nice talking with you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to Margaret. You're on the air. Hi, Margaret. Hi. How are you? Not too bad. That's I'm good. calling because very, very confused with the things I'm hearing. Last week on Open Law and I heard one lady say that we're not going to get any more GST. Then I heard another lady say, uh, if you make over $29,000, you will not get any increase. And then another one said that uh, over 75, they'll get 10%. Now, what will a senior get? <laughs> Good question, because we're talking about a variety of different uh, programs and benefits. The one that we've been talking about in the last couple of days are provincial benefits, the income supplement and the seniors benefit. So those are both provincial. The over 75, I believe, and I stand to be corrected on that, is the federal government one that comes into play yeah. in um, July or August. July, I think on your July check. That's what I understood. But what, what's this like, like okay, I get GIC, right? Guaranteed income supplement. Right. So what what am I supposed to be getting? 
uh, you'll get a 10% increase is my understanding in your, um, yes, your, uh, your income supplement. So that, your, that'll the, come when the your quarterly, check comes. yeah, when it comes when your, your check comes. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the GST? Is there any difference in that? Like when you do your income tax, then you know, if you receive, if you receive GST or do exactly. they have that cut out or? No, no. As far as I know, GST is still a thing and someone can uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, but yeah, that's based on your last income tax. So that comes out in July as well, I believe. I think they're usually the fifth, fourth or the fifth. Okay. I don't know I the dates, GST but it's usually the first week in, in, in July. Yeah. 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 Well, I over, I got to clear this time. <laughs> so Hopefully. you should be getting a little bit of a boost. Uh, so um, y- how are you getting by? Oh, not too bad. That's I cut back a bit on our travel and things like that, you know, but I mean, the cost of living has gone up a bit, but we're doing fine. Well, I think we're doing fine. Well, that's good to hear. So, you, yeah, it, and all of this is automatic. Uh, apparently, you don't have to do anything. Um, it's all based on your uh, your last income tax, um, you know, filing. So if you filed your income tax, you should be fine. Everything will be adjusted as needs to be adjusted. Okay. All uh, right. I just, I just heard Craig Party talking about the roads. I do have one complaint. When you go... Uh, somewhere for ride and they're fixing a paddle you don't need two trucks and six men to fix a paddle uh, that's the reason why maybe there's one paddle fixed in eight hours when it could be maybe eight of paddles fixed in eight hours and margaret I think, if uh, i was going to say if you get your check in the mail sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but dave just gave okay. me a little bit of information if you get your check in the mail check your mail somebody just called and said they just got theirs which check? Uh, GST. I'm guessing the GST. GST, I guess, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay, fine. All right. Thank you very much. All the best to you. You too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We're going now to Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Hi. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Um, I'm... Calling about the passport, actually, I sent my child's passport in February, along with my my child's my child's father had passed away. So I sent him the death certificate. I sent him his long birth certificate with both names, and I got my passport back in May. We're leaving July fifteenth. Oh my uh, goodness! Yeah, they are telling me that I needed a custody agreement, and this is what prolonged it. Nowhere on their website does it say that. I was talking to the Canadian embassy. They said that they they don't understand it, um, and so I think they messed up and they prolonged me, and now they're just pulling things out of their earth. <laughs> <laughs> they're behinds. Um, yeah. So they needed a custody agreement, even though the child's father was passed on. Yeah, and I couldn't understand it. And then I looked on the website last night, and nowhere does it say they need a custody agreement. They just needed everything that I sent in in the beginning, which was the birth certificate and the death certificate. And is that the the reason why it was delayed that long? Was it? That- yeah, because they told me that they'd never received it, so I sent it five times. Twice they said they, ne- they never received it. The third time they said it was sideways, and they can't read sideways. And the fourth time... <laughs> Yeah, the fourth time um, I faxed it again, and I also mailed it because I was like, I cannot afford the the to prolong it anymore. 
So they received both the fax copy the last time and the mailed copy. So you had to start getting a bit nervous then when you're trying to plan a trip. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's crazy. And like I said, I've had mine since May, but his apparently no supervisors are looking at it. Um, No, nothing. Nobody's answering questions from the agents on the phone, apparently. So have you got his yet? Yes. No. You don't have it yet? No, and I'm in Labrador City, so they're telling me that I have to fly to St. John's to get it and get an urgent one, which will cost me $2,000. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the plane ticket is literally $1,700. Well, that's ridiculous. There's got to be a better way. Yeah, she told me that basically yesterday on the phone, she said sink or swim. She was like, we've done all we could do. I'm like, it's been six months. You have not done all you can do. Like, it's obviously a mistake on someone's end for me needing a custody agreement. And they've had everything that they needed since day one. So how do you get a custody agreement from someone who's passed on? (laughs) Well, we had one in 2012. We had separated. So... Um, because I told the agent we were separated when he passed, he said, okay, well, you're going to need a custody agreement. And of course, like when me and his father, like when his father had passed, we were on such good terms that we didn't have one. So I had to like go to the courts and actually get a copy of it. And uh, then I sent it five times. Oh my dear. So what do you do now? What do, I mean, certainly you're not going to fly to St. John's. Well, I guess that's my, because we're supposed to, so what we're doing is taking his ashes and burying it with his mother's side. So this, we're going to Ireland and that's, his mother's an Irish citizen. So it was like, we're going to have a memorial because he passed in on Christmas Eve, actually of 2019, which, I mean, it was Christmas. We couldn't do anything. And then it went into COVID right after. So we couldn't do anything for the last two years. And so, um, we had all this planned. His family's coming, like my family's coming, but and now we're stalled because of his only son can't come. So I'm thinking that I'll have to. I'm going to have to wait two days before and try to jump on a plane and spend like it'll probably be more by then. Probably be like twenty five hundred. And when is the flight to Ireland? Uh, July fifteenth. Oh my goodness, that's like next week. Yeah. And I've been calling like every day, every second day. And they told me, the lady on the phone yesterday told me any amount of calling that I'm doing won't change anything. You have to physically show up in St. John's. Yeah. Like nobody else. My my family's actually, I had tons of family out there. Like I just moved back from there in July. And um, they told me that I have to be the one to show up. What a nightmare. As if you're not dealing with enough right now. Exactly. And as I said, the only bit of normalcy that my son will have in two years, and I feel like Passport Canada is just screwing me around about it. Have you tried Yvonne Jones's office? Um, yeah, I had sent something in last week, but they said that the MP has not even called, tried to, to get in touch with them. That's what Passport Canada said this morning, so I'm not sure what the situation is there or... Yeah, there could be any number of reasons for that. But, uh, oh, my goodness. I'm dumbfounded by what you're telling us. I know. It's crazy. And I know, like, everybody's in the same situation. Everybody's waiting. But, like, I'm waiting because of the mistake that they made, I believe. Because, like, there was no, there's no mention of a custody agreement for a deceased parent on their website at all. 
They just needed the two documents that I had sent in. And do they know this is a trip to bury the father? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I feel like um, some have compassion and some don't. Like the lady I was talking to yesterday, I might as well have been talking to nobody because she said there's nothing else I can do for you. No man of calling is going to help. And that's it. And how do you feel about all of this? What, how has it left you feeling? Oh, I am stressed. <laughs> Extremely stressed. Frustrated, yeah. angry, upset. Oh, yeah. And like I said, um, it's, I don't know, I shouldn't, I, it shouldn't have taken this long. Like, I know everybody's like, oh, there's a delay, like, four months. But, I mean, it's almost six months. I sent it February 28th. When you were finally making the plans because you couldn't make the plans because of COVID. Yeah, Exactly. Oh my so, and then they said, I couldn't get a passport without having plans. They said, oh, if you have plans, it'll make it easier. So I'd already bought my plane ticket right before I, I did the passport even out. I did the passport like the next couple of days after. And it's a good thing because I'm usually a procrastinator. And I actually did it like for once on time. As soon as you had the opportunity, you did it. Yeah, exactly. And still nothing. Oh my goodness. Nothing. Well, I hope that this gets resolved before you are planning to get on that plane for Ireland to finally lay your, your, uh, your former partner to, to rest. This is unbelievable. It's crazy. And like I said, it would just give my, my son, like he's going to visit everywhere that my, my, you know, his father did like growing up and stuff. Like it's just going to be a little bit of relief for him. I think a little bit of closure, you know? Yeah, and that connection, those important connections to to your family that you know he might might not normally get, right? Exactly. It's it's essential. Oh my goodness, how old is how old is your son? He's eleven. So at the age now where you know everything's memorable. It's an important age, a really important age. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, Nat Natasha, I hope you keep us up to date on this. This is um, something else. Um, yeah, I'm hoping. And uh, I hope you're able to do this without having to book a flight to uh, to St. John's to get it sorted out. Just imagine now coming here and then being told there's nothing we can do or the person's not available. Yeah, exactly. And that's what they said. I can't. Uh, the lady on the phone said, if I go to Montreal, it's a 36-hour wait and bring a tent. Um, they said, you're better off going to St. John's. And she said, you should have it within the two days. So I'll have to, like, I already have a, a month off work to go, to take my son to this and um, then I'd have to take more time off work to go out and get a passport and then come back and just fly over again. Oh, my goodness. Well, Natasha, do keep us up to date and we'll see if there's anybody out there that can offer you any solace or, or, or <laughs> um, advice or whatever the case may be. And hopefully just you bringing this public will get some gears rolling. I really appreciate right, this. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. Just imagine what that poor woman is going through at such a difficult time. Well, bureaucracy, I suppose. Uh, anyway, any thoughts on that? Give us a call. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly. We're going now to Rosalind. You're on the air. 
Hello. Hi, Rosalind. Oh, good morning, my dear. A long wait, but anyhow, it's good. <laughs> a little bit of good news now instead of all that bad stuff. Okay, great. Uh, anyhow, I want to wish a uh, uh, happy 86th birthday today to the oldest resident of King's Cove, Bertha Keogh. And uh, she is the oldest, and she's still tripping around my dear and don't miss church and whatever. She's... Uh, She's well. She's wonderful. All her family is going to be here for her birthday today. So, anyhow, I love and best wishes from all her friends and family. And while I got you on there, I wanted to put in a little gig that we got our uh, Late House Festival coming up on the twenty third, two and a half weeks away. And uh, uh, Patty told me to give a little shout when it was close. So anyhow, it's the twenty third, and we got a good lineup. We got Shani Ganuck, Bob McDonald, the Celtic Connection. Masterless man and our own local young man. He's our pharmacy and pharmacist in Bonavista, Jason Roy, and he's awesome. And also, we have a few more 50-50 tickets left. Uh, they're five dollars each, and the prize is five thousand dollars. And um, if anybody is looking for them, they can give me a shout at the uh, 447-6510 or anybody else is connected with the with the Lighthouse Festival. Anyhow, right, so tell and, uh, us a little bit more about this Lighthouse Festival. This is in uh, Kings Cove, Bonavista Bay? Yes, my dear. I said, Craig Perry, you should have mentioned that when he was on there just now. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we know we got a really, really good uh, time here every year, just, uh, out in the ball field. And uh, I don't imagine that COVID would be because it's all outside. The tickets are $60 at the gate. And uh, I know last year we had uh, 500 tickets because that's how we were allowed, and they sold out in 24 hours, <laughs> less than 24 hours, I think. So you but sound yeah, like yeah, you're yeah, the... Really we love to see you come by. Oh, I'd love to. I, 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 I love the Bonavista Peninsula, first of yeah, all. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I love Bonavista Bay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Trinity Bay and Conception Bay and all the bays. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, but Kings Cove, I have to say, what a breathtakingly beautiful community. Absolutely gorgeous with beautiful trails and everything, you know, like this. Absolutely gorgeous here. I lived away for over 40 years. And come back to Kings, I wouldn't have it any other place, any other way. Come back to Kingsville. Absolutely gorgeous. They used and to call the it the Athens, was it? The Athens of the North? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Athens of the North. Yeah, you've got to make a trip down here, my dear, again. Come down to the, the Lighthouse Festival. All right, so what's uh, the Lighthouse really, Festival uh, all I about? I talking to Patty earlier, and uh, he, uh, he was hoping to get down, but I guess he's on holidays now, so he probably won't get down either. He might, you never know. You never know. Where right. there's a will, there's a way. Where um, there's a way, and I know the, the roads, like uh, Craig Pratty was saying, is in ridiculous condition. It is awful, awful. If you get your wheel uh, stuck in one of them, you lose your car. Oh, dear. <laughs> it, um, is, it is. The roads are awful, and it's not very good for the tourists. They're talking about tourists coming in. It's terrible. And I'll tell you something else, Linda. COVID in the Bonavista Peninsula is raging. Is that right? It is crazy, crazy, my dear. Uh, there's a, uh, people here in Kingscove now, uh, they're all from Kingscove, all their family and everything, and uh, there's a wedding coming up on Saturday, and half of the wedding, you know, I have the people going to that got COVID. Oh, dear. And there's, there's absolutely so still not, going. Yeah. I mean, you know, like we, we tend to forget these things sometimes, especially where we're yeah. not getting these regular updates. No, um, no, nothing, yeah, nothing updated, but uh, it said the close quarters made us the worst. Like funerals now and those weddings coming up, and most of them are in. Uh, we had a, a retirement. Uh, uh, well, I didn't. Was the, the what do you call it from the school? Everybody retired. Uh, 
principal, retired from our school here, and they had a retirement party for her in Bonavista, and I don't know how many people was there, but there's 30 or 40 of them down with the COVID. Oh, dear, and it spread so easily, see? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. A lot of people yeah. stick with it, too, mate. It's not, you know, it's not, not, I just don't say they're in hospital or anything. Oh, it's not a walk in the park, I guarantee you. Not a walk in the park, I know, because my friend right next door that used to come and give me a hand, because I, you know, live by myself and everything, and he used to come and give me a hand, and man, he's down with it really bad, too, really sick. I spoke to him yesterday on the phone. So, yeah. Rosalind, you're talking about this uh, uh, Lighthouse Festival on the 23rd. What's it all about? Uh, well, music, okay, we got get all those people that come, the, the bands and everything, and drinking mostly, that's what it's all about. <laughs> I said they got the, they got the, and uh, I'm home the King's Cove. <laughs> the mayor's Mike Ricketts, he usually was uh, the organizer of it, and he got everything on the country. It was really nice, yeah. <laughs> right in the uh, big baseball field right, right here in King's Cove. And uh, he got everything organized and got all the bands up. Like I said, there's uh, all these nice bands. Shannon Ganock is the main one. Bob McDonald, did I tell you? The Kelly Connection and the Masterless Men. Well, you got some connections, that's for sure. You got oh, yeah. all the, the big wheelers coming in. Yeah, all the big wheelers, yes, Matt. It's a, it is, we do we do have a great a great uh, time, must say. Even last year, with the, and it was cold last year when we had, I think it was in August last year. But anyhow, it was a cold night. But, man, they got out there, they danced on the field, and they did it all. <laughs> there you go, warm, warm oh. the place up a bit. And um, not only that, they got a, a, a food truck that comes, and it's really excellent food. The, you know that they serve, and they serve it like all night, and I think even uh, even uh, Saturday Sunday morning. Rosalind, uh, you sound like a mover and a shaker. Oh yeah, what? <laughs> for an old lady, yes, mate. Because uh, uh, Bertie Kill, I said she's eighty six today, and I'm, she's the oldest resident, and I'm the next one to her. But no, I'm not in the eighties yet. Well, now, Rosalind, yeah. uh, you're doing good work there. Obviously, I really appreciate your call. Thank well, you. Yeah, there's number one, my dear. Hoping to see you, and I enjoy you. I enjoy. I never miss open line every day. I tell you the truth. Half my day is spent listening to open line. Oh, very <laughs> crazy. Good. But anyhow, we enjoy everything, and I uh, hope and pray to God you have a good week, and I hope Patty has a good holiday. You same the same. He really deserves it. Yeah. He deserves it, man. He. I don't know where he gets the patience. Tell you the truth. But he do have lots of patience, and he, he holds it, you know, so, which is good. But anyhow, you have a great day, and I appreciate you taking my call. All right. It was, it was worth the wait. Rosalind, all the best to you. Thank you very much, my darling. And Alrighty. I pray to God we'll see you down this way. I, I oh. would uh, hope to do the same, yes. Oh, yeah, okay, darling. Alrighty. Take care, and have a, have a good one. All right, bye-bye. And a happy birthday to Bertha Keel, uh, oldest resident of Kings Cove, Bonavista Bay. We're going to go now to Charlie. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Linda. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Yeah, oh, doing fine, thanks. Uh, re refreshing to hear that uh, lady there uh, d drinking, I think she said was the main <laughs> She's a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, congratulations on your award. Oh, thank you very much. I'd like to uh, uh, send uh, kudos out to Tom this morning. Uh, I usually uh, try to listen to him every Tuesday morning, right? Mm-hmm. Tom spoke a lot of truth and wisdom, I, I believe, this morning. Uh, I, do, I don't want to ignite a war between Mount Pearl residents and St. John's, but I've lived I've lived in both places, uh, especially St. John's. I think Mount Pearl uh, residents are far ahead and far more progressive than St. John's residents. <laughs> 
Do you want to comment on that before I go on? Uh, no, because uh, I don't belong to either place, so okay. <laughs> you can say what you want. Well, Tom, uh, Tom was talking this morning, and, and I've heard him speak about it before. Uh, I don't understand St. John's residents not voting that guy in. He was always standing up for the taxpayer and uh, felt that uh, St. John's was paying its employees uh, over and above uh, what they could afford. And Mount Pearl trying to hold the line, and uh, he didn't get voted in. So I'd, I'd attribute that more to uh, they, they, they didn't look after their own self-interest. He, w- he would have been a good representative for them. He talked about uh, wage increases and the union being happy, which will just tell you something this day and age. And uh, he, he makes the connections. That's what I find good about him. He talks about, okay, people uh, love to to, 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 to travel and 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 heat well and have big homes and big vehicles and uh, they don't seem to uh, to make the connections that he's making that uh, uh perhaps we're we're too entitled in this day and age uh he said he saw the connection himself between air travel and and and, and climate change and i would say very very few uh, uh, people uh, uh would 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 go along with that as far as uh, his opinion on that but anyway, he seems to uh, to get it. We we act as if uh, we do a little bit of recycling and feel so good about ourselves. The main thing that we don't do is 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 uh, reduce. We in fact insist on living eye off the hog, as if this earth is uh, as as unlimited supply of uh, resources for us. And uh, I don't know. I just find it frustrating in the education system too. Uh, they don't seem to 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 uh, be talking to uh, children, educating them for the things that they they that they ought to to, to know. Uh, one time we used to have a classic education, Greek and Latin, and so on, and of course we dropped that because it was kind of uh, uh, out of date and and maybe a little bit useless. And we've gone to a system now as uh, to me it's a 19th, uh, 20th century uh, education. We thought the internet would solve everything. People would be uh, uh, learning things, uh, you know, from all over the world and so on. Seems to me it's like food. We we, we prefer the candy to the uh, to the vegetable, and in the, in the internet uh, we prefer the gossip and Facebook to the uh, the real stuff. I don't know if you want to comment. There's, on yeah, I'm throwing a lot out there. Today. No, there, you've th- you're throwing a lot out there, and uh, you know there's some people who would say that recycling is an excuse not to reduce, but reducing uh, the, the your consumption is is key. Yes. To saving the planet, it's not key, however, to keeping the economy rolling. So you've got these two dichotomies that are going at the same time. Yes. And, and and as far as I'm concerned, the economy uh, is, is, is winning because if, if you look at, uh, especially with the increasing population, but people only see it in terms of uh, the increasing numbers in, in the third world countries like Africa and so on. In, in the first world countries like ours, we don't make the, the connection that our consumption, our big house and our big car and our travel and our eating meat and all that stuff, that's that's probably worse than the population problem uh, elsewhere, but anyway. Well, uh, Charlie, you're making some uh, interesting observations there, as did Tom. Uh, I really appreciate your call this morning. Okay, all the best. And, and one, one little thing I, I read this morning, a little, little bit of hope there. Have you heard of uh, the new batteries being developed called sand batteries? No. 
Okay, these are being developed in Finland, especially. Uh, they've been around for a while. But uh, they uh, don't use lithium and other uh, uh, minerals and that that are very uh, hard on the earth and so on, very hard to get and expensive. They use sand, and they last. The, they can store uh, solar power, wind power on that for lo a lot longer period of time, and they're cheaper. And, of course, uh, if that... Develops. That's a big thing to have batteries that can last a long time. You know, you might want to check that out and uh, bring it up for as, as a topic sometime because it's 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 really a good development. Anyway, that is intriguing. Thank you, Charlie. I'll have a look at that. Okay, and all the best to you. All right, same to you. Okay, Linda. Bye bye. Bye bye. And we'll have uh, uh, we'll hear from others uh, right after the break. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly. We're going to go now to Glenn. Hello, Glenn. Good morning, Linda, and how are you? I'm grand. How are you? I'm great. It's been quite a while since we talked. I guess it was back during your days at uh, CHPO, and that's, that's a while ago, that's, I guess. We're... That's going back a few years, yes. Absolutely. Uh, we had many uh, conversations, you know, about uh, regionalization and sharing of services and amalgamation, I guess, back in those days. And and our efforts to get the Veterans Memorial started and built and so on. Uh, quite interesting times. Indeed. Uh, does it meet your standards, the Veterans Memorial? Well, uh, well, Linda didn't really want to talk about that, but <laughs> but, yeah, but but I will. Uh, you know, if, if you got the time, look back back during the day. If you remember, uh, uh, you know, uh, the money for veterans was supposed to be there uh, during the the road to rails agreement. I'm sure you you remember that infamous deal that. Uh, that uh, that we made and we lost our railway. Yes, indeed. But, yeah. Yes, and and uh, at the time, actually, uh, veterans was supposed to be uh, twinned, you know, because it was a main artery from the Trans Canada right down to uh, Conception Bay North, you know, and all the communities along the way. But anyway, that's that's the story, probably for another time, because I know they had to move the money around to quite a number of locations around the province that needed roads as well, you know. But anyway. But, Linda, uh, I called this morning with regards to something that happened here in Victoria uh, over the weekend. Uh, we, had, uh, we had planned as, as, a, as a town a uh, come-home-year celebration, uh, you know, Victoria Day, Canada Day, and we kind of rolled it all into one. But anyway, back in, uh, back in uh, 1996, if I may go back that far, uh, you know, we held a, uh, a come home year to celebrate our 25th anniversary of incorporation, and uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the, uh, the provincial, the province-wide uh, come home year celebration of 1966, if you remember. But anyway, so at that time, uh, Newfoundland Light and Power was gracious enough to install a couple of utility poles, one on either side of the of the highway leading into Victoria so that we could put a, a, a banner on it. And anyway, uh, so, so the poles were still, are still there, and uh, we had a contractor go in and, and make sure that the poles were still safe. And a matter of fact, you know, they installed some new guy wires and everything to it to make sure that there was no problem. And, uh, and then the contractor installed a, a banner for us there to, uh, you know, to make the public aware as they entered the community that uh, we had celebrations on for the weekend. Anyway, lo and behold, 
the town clerk manager gets a call from government. Uh, I guess it was uh, service NL, I don't know. But anyway, saying that the banner had to come down and they would be sending out a crew to take it down. It was in a, an illegal sign, they said. Now, Linda, this was absolutely safe. It was installed by a contractor. There was no danger. Anyway, what they did now, just get this now, on the eve of Canada Day, they sent out a crew from uh, uh, Work Service Transportation. I counted five pickups, uh, and I'm not sure if it was a boom truck or a bucket truck, five pickups and and uh, uh, a car and a crew of about eight men on overtime get you know to uh, to take this banner down now you know uh, i don't know what kind of a spirit that the government is in with regards to come home here but that's what they did and paid that crew on overtime to have that banner removed so when they say it was an illegal sign, what are they saying? That you didn't fill out the paperwork or give them notification beforehand or that it simply shouldn't have been there in the first place well, at all? Well, yeah, well, Linda, I really don't know because, you know, with the hustle and bustle of trying to, uh, you know, to plan the events and everything, I don't know. We may have over- overlooked getting a permit because we know you got to have a permit now to do that. But there was uh, numerous towns around the province and there's pictures available on, you know, online of, uh, of, of signs being uh, being erected, uh, you know, across the road and tied on with a piece of rope and everything else but that's but that's neither here here nor there i mean we made sure that ours was safe and secure and no danger to the public and uh, but but linda back a while ago uh, uh you know we had we had a bulletin board uh, you know, at the, at the intersection of our community there coming up from the North Shore. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a beautiful sign. It wasn't dilapidated. It, you know, it, it's been there about 30 or 40 years. They, they made us remove that. And lo and behold, down in the brook next to it was a Department of Highways culvert. Uh, not a culvert, I'm sorry, a guardrail. We, Linda, we were five years trying to get a rail reinstalled that had fallen into the brook on one of our bridges that was unsafe for pedestrians you know it takes two years to get a pothole fixed and here we are uh you know government decides to send out a crew on overtime uh to remove a sign that was safe and absolutely no issue or no uh, no safety problem to the traveling public or to anybody just advertising our uh, you know our celebrations for the weekend you know what linda you know i guess maybe you know in hindsight we should have put nascar on the on the sign because maybe government would have given us some money to install the sign like they did with nascar gave them six hundred thousand dollars to one of the biggest corporations in the world with some of the biggest corporate sponsors in the world to come here and and, and to here every year anyway so that's the kind of things, Linda, that, uh, you know, I mean, those kind of things rots me. I, you know, I mean, as you know, I've been I've been around uh, municipal, uh, you know, politics and federal and provincial politics for 40 or 50 years. And, you know, and, and, and it seems like, you know, we've regressed to those kinds of situations. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is, but, uh, you know, anyway, uh, you know, that's my beef for today. Uh, you think if it was the matter of a permit that uh, you say, you know, for one reason or another wasn't filled in, you think if it was a matter of a permit that, you know, that paperwork could have been expedited and said, yes, bye, you know, you got your come home year celebrations. Here's the paperwork. Make sure you got it filled out. 
Absolutely, Linda, and that's where I'm coming from. You know, I mean, we have, you know, uh, you know, we have a minister here, uh, you know, representing the area, and I know he was away. He was, you know, he was uh, at a at a function. Uh, I think it was uh, Beaumont Hamlet. He was in Beaumont Hamlet. Yeah. yeah, and it's difficult, you know, to do something. I guess when you're over there, but, but you know, uh, Linda, I, I mean, to send to send uh, a bunch of uh, you know of, of employees out on the east of Canada Day with uh, with a bunch of equipment uh, like I said I counted five pickups alone you know and and uh, on overtime uh, to remove a banner that was not causing any obstruction or any or any danger to the public uh, my god I yeah. Linda, you know, I I've, 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 I've I have volunteered my time for years and years and years and years. As you know, uh, you know, we've had many conversations, you and I, back, you know, as I say, during our days at, you know, when you were at CHVO and I was chair of the Conception Bay North Joint Councils, and 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 I've never seen anything like this, you know, and and uh, and you probably know, you know, I worked with a federal cabinet minister for five years, and 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 back in those days, you know, we could pick up the phone, and, and in a situation like that I could uh, you know speak to somebody in the minister's office it didn't matter what the minister it was you know if it was federal or provincial and and we could always get something resolved and sometimes you know things have to be resolved at a moment's notice because you know sometimes things are critical and sometimes they're important and and if they're not important to the general public that you know they're always important to somebody so, uh, but things have changed now, and I know with the Privacy Act and everything else, and on it goes. I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of changes over the years. But anyway, uh, you know, there it is, right? And oh. I, I would like for probably, you know, the Minister of Service NL or somebody to come on and explain why, in God's name, that they act, you know, so arbitrarily as that, you know. Glenn, you're raising some really important points. I hope you have a good come home of your celebration anyway. Uh, thanks a lot for your call. Well, we did, Linda. We, you know, uh, everything went ahead, you know, thanks to our, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, committee that we had in place. They, you know, they did a fantastic job and, and, and in putting things together and, and, and uh, you know, everything went well and the weather cooperated and everything went really, really well. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, Glenn, I'll be out to Victoria now another week or so. Thanks a lot. Oh, you'll be coming out? Oh, yes, it comes out on time. Oh, well, I'd love to see you. <laughs> Very good, then. <laughs> I really would, because, you know, uh, it's been a long time. And actually, Linda, sometime, sometime if we could, because I, I know you do a show uh, sometimes, you know, in the afternoon, uh, I just forget what it's called. You know, I'd love to talk to you sometime about regionalization, because, as you know, I've been involved a long, long time, and... Uh, you know, maybe we could do that sometime. Anyway, just a thought, and you could think about that and see what happens. With all right, Glenn, all the best. All right, you take care. Great right. talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, anyway, any thoughts on that? Give us a call. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We are going to go now to Gary. You're on the air. Good morning, Linda. How are you doing? I'm good, Gary. How are you? Well, not so bad. Listen, I heard the heartbreaking story from Natasha this morning, and it still breaks my heart uh, what she's going through to try to resolve an issue. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I'm phoning to suggest that uh, if it's the Minister of Transport of Canada that she was talking to, that department there, 
My suggestion is that she gets a hold of Clifford Small, the Conservative Party member here in either in uh, Gander or uh, Grand Falls, and uh, see if uh, pass that message on to that, that those departments there, the people there, they could pass on to Clifford Small and have the opposition party look into that for her and maybe put a little pressure on to help her out. Uh, it certainly, uh, I, I would think every avenue would help. Um, but, well, that's uh, my suggestion because it's like a needle in the haystack and time is of importance now, right? <laughs> certainly. Like, it uh, seems like a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare, though, what she's going through. No kidding, because if it's uh, uh, Minister of Transfers, if that's uh, the federal one, that whole office of the nightmares is it's as incompetent as can be right now. It's, uh, you know, right across Canada. I mean, the lineups in Pearson Airport in Toronto and uh, not just there, but everywhere. It's sort of like it, it, it's a it's a nightmare. <laughs> and I, indeed, I get it. Uh, you know, I get it that, you know, certain paperwork has to be filled out. Certain things have to be done in a certain yeah. way because, there, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios that, you know, where things can go incredibly wrong if you're if you're taking a child overseas. Um, but the way she described her scenario there, you think that some common sense would kick in at some point, you know, in, in terms of uh, issuing permits or allowing things to happen. I mean, she has to fly from Labrador West to St. John's to show up in person to get a, a sheet of paper that she's uh, provided them with everything they need already. I, it just seems Yeah, and that, that's excessive. why my suggestion is uh, for Clifford Small. He's a strong voice here in Newfoundland, you know, for not just his own riding. He he always suggested, you know, you don't have to be in his riding to take a have a call to that office and he'll look into it. Hopefully something gets done because he, he's behind every Newfoundlander. <laughs> well, let's see what uh, the MHA for the region has to say. He's uh, up next. Okay, well, that's... Uh... But that's my suggestion. So, if uh, Natasha, if you're listening, that's my suggestion. Hopefully, uh, you can uh, uh, reach out to the either office there, either in uh, Grand Falls or Gander, and you know maybe something a little more pressure onto the federal government. <laughs> All right, Gary. Thanks for your call. Okay. Have a great day. All righty. Bye bye. Yep, bye now. Uh, and now we're going to go to the MHA for Labrador West, Jordan Brown. Hello. Hello. Nice to talk to you again, Linda. Same to you. Did you hear Natasha's call earlier? I know. It's absolutely heartbreaking that, you know, that someone got so lost in the bureaucracy once again. And then once again, also, you know, the federal government forgets how big Canada is and how, uh, you know, it's just not a hop, skip and a jump from Lab West to St. John's. Uh, it seems uh, very, very, very out of touch, even for a country like Canada, where we are very spread out and, you know, very vastly populated. So just, to, you know, to... to even suggest that seems so out of touch with Canadians. Doesn't it, though? Uh, is there any role you can play in helping to get those cogs greased? I, I, I could see what I could do, but uh, at this uh, at this juncture, I'd ha I, ha I have never dealt with the passport office on a federal level, unfortunately, so we'll have to, she's more than welcome to call the office. Uh, so you're calling about a, another issue in Labrador, and this is a kind of a, a really auspicious occasion. What's happening? Yeah, so today's the day, um, after many, many years and delays, we actually have a completely paved highway from Labrador West to St. John's. And that is fabulous. It is fabulous. It's uh, been a long time in the making. It is a very long time in the making because it was first announced in 1973 under Frank Moores. 
That's how long it's been to build the Trans Labrador Highway. Just imagine that. Was that fifty years? Oh, it's, it'll be fifty years. Yeah, now uh, <laughs> next year will be fifty years since the actual start of the highway. Um, so it was announced under Frank Moore's, and it was carried by every government ever since. Um, some aspect of it. Um, in well, like I said, since uh, 1997, the government just put a press release there just moments in a while. I was waiting for you actually about it because they're about to connect the two sections together. Uh, you know, it, since. They've estimated since 1997, $1 billion has been put into the road since 1997. So that even predates the original work. Um, so we're talking about a mega – it was a mega project that people didn't even know was happening. It, it, it has been on the go for so long, so many different companies, so many uh, you know, uh, men and women worked on this highway since that time. And uh, now a majority of Labrador is connected by a highway uh, of some level. And, but yet we still can't forget one major part. There still has not been a single shovel of dirt turned for the section for the North Coast. Right, and I know Leela Evans has been pushing for that. Oh, um, uh, well, all Labrador MHAs, past and present and current and ongoing, um, have all actually said that this was a, that, that, that project needs to be done. And so we're talking about we are, we're all connected now, partially, but we still have to say that the Trans-Labrador Highway isn't actually done until the road hits name. Uh, and what would the cost and logistics involved in that be? Oh, and it's it's no you know it's no uh, you know it's no uh, small project. That itself would be its own mega project in itself. Um, you know, we just look at you can look at historically like you know um, roads in the Northwest Territories and stuff like that would be you know a similar kind of concept. So you know we're we're still looking at probably another you know billion dollars easy for uh, to go work work that way. And another 50 years, maybe? Uh, hopefully not another 50 years. We, 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 we Hopefully we're past that idea of it. But, you know, you stop and think about it all these years. And, you know, uh, and, I'm, and it's, it's, it was within my lifetime. So um, growing up uh, here in Lavera West, we weren't connected to Goose Bay until uh, 1994. Um, we were waiting on a, a massive bridge, actually, uh, to be built across uh, one section of the uh, the reservoir to power Churchill Falls. So we had to wait for this big bridge to be built. Um, so uh, when we were kids, uh, my dad would take me down. We go, we go to the you know the end of the highway, he'd call it. We'd go down to the end of the highway to go fishing, and we stop there, and there'd be you know you see whatever we're building this bridge, this massive bridge across the reservoir there. Um, so you know we you know and and it was funny because last week I actually went fishing with my dad down that area, and I stopped and looked at it, and, you know, and you see the you know on every bridge in this province there's a date, and you see 1994, and I said, Dad, you know that's within my lifetime we we got connected to Goose Bay. And so now, and uh, you know, we're we're now you know connected that way. And then you stop, then think, in 2010, uh, just before uh, it was 2010, yeah, no, 2009, just before that Christmas, just before 2010, uh, before my daughter was born, uh, me and my wife, we uh, we drove to uh, Goose Bay uh, Christmas Eve, and I actually messaged Yvonne Jones' office and asked her. And she actually, Yvonne herself actually got back to me and said, uh, I asked her, would the gate be open on the Churchill Bridge to let people through to drive down to the south coast of Labrador for Christmas? Because that section was kind of done. And it was back, and, and it was. Uh, in, uh, so that Christmas, uh, I showed up and surprised my wife's family. We actually drove from Lab West to Cartwright, one of the first groups of people to do it, uh, and to spend Christmas down there. So, you know, within my own lifetime and my children's lifetime, uh, Labrador has slowly been connected uh, by a highway network. So and what did the people in Lab West, uh, what, what were they connected to prior to that? I guess it was all uh, on the Quebec side of things. You had to go yeah, down to uh, uh, that seems a fascinating or... story. Yeah, so uh, in, the, in the 1989, um, some sections were joined up. So there 
So there's the, the, one, the, the 389. So that's an infamous highway in Quebec. Uh, it's still in rough shape, and it still has a long way to go itself to be uh, any highway grade. Uh, but so in the 80s, that was all connected together with a uh, patchwork of roads connecting different aspects of different projects together. So you can, you know, work your way down through. So it's getting better and better every year. And they, they Quebec got a lot of work to do on that itself. Um, but that was our, our, our out of Labrador was either you take the train, take a plane or drive it through Quebec. So and that was only in the 80s. So still with my in my in my, in my father's lifetime, um, that Lab West got connected to the outside world, and and then and then you look at like Happy Valley Goose Bay. Um, their only connection to the outside world was either the coastal boat, the airport, or they had a a very rough road there that was built to help construct the future Trans Labrador Highway uh, that was connected to them in the 70s to, uh, to Churchill Falls. So you know we've only become more connected to the rest of this country in the last, you know, two, two and a half decades. And to have this section now, it's historic now. A lot of Labradorians will argue, um, you know, they're a bit slow doing it and not. But you got to stop and think, though. The amount of work went into a highway. And you just, I look at that right now. This highway was built, you know, in absolute remoteness. Um, these they, They're camps in remote sections of Labrador. You know, uh, like, you know, hours and hours drive from any community, and people worked on this road almost continuously, at least from the, you know, the 1990s, that there was always some aspect of construction on that highway since the 1990s. And now today, when they connect the two sections together, as of right now, a majority of the construction has ended. Like the large chunk of the construction has ended. Now it's just, you know, the smaller stuff and maintenance. So we just completed a mega project in this province that we didn't even know was going on. And I, I like that analogy um, because you're right, and it's something that you forget about unless you're there, that this has been ongoing for all this time, and now finally the two sides are meeting and the pavement is being put on, and it's it's a big day. Where where exactly is this last segment? It would be a Cartwright Junction, about an hour uh, outside of Cartwright, Labrador, just near um, Paradise River. I think that's where, from the pictures I was sent, is where they're going to meet. So, you know, we're, it's still even going to be joined together in a fairly remote place in, in Labrador. Um, so, you know, we're, we're now seeing, um, you know, this section. Now, my opinion of it, the Trans-Labrador Highway is not done until the road reaches Nain. Will that happen in my lifetime? I hope so. And I hope that government is actually, you know, going to pursue their feasibility studies and, you know, start some aspect of that work, you know, to connect the rest of Labradorians together. Um, but as of like, you know, right now, a majority of the construction is going to end, you know, this week. And, you know, these massive, you know, remote camps and these people working in, you know, some hot and fly infested, uh, you know, uh, sections of the highway, you know, and. They, 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 you know, you got to give it out to all the construction workers and all the people that actually worked on this highway. They worked in very remote places under, I would call the amount of flies that you're in remote labor, you know, inhumane. <laughs> but these people worked worked very hard um, to put together a massive project that a majority of people on the island didn't even know was happening to the scale that it actually was. You know, um, the section between Labrador City and Churchill Falls, that's over 200 kilometers of remote area. There's no, there's no, there's no people. There's no, no communities in between those sections. And again, between uh, Churchill Falls and Goose Bay, over 200 plus kilometers of, you know, no settlements, no communities. You know, it's just these massive sections. And then you go from uh, Goose Bay to Cartwright Junction. Uh, you know, that's over 300 kilometers of remote wilderness. And, you know, these, uh, these uh, men and women pushed a highway. Uh, since 1997 through these very remote areas 
And, you know, for them, it's a, it's a big day of celebration for them, too. For sure. Uh, Jordan Brown, I'm so glad you gave us a call uh, to tell us about it. Thank you very much. No worries. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off on vacation. We're going to go now to Anne. You're on the air. Hi, Anne. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm fine. That's I've been good. trying to get on open line for two hours this morning. Oh, God bless your heart. Yes. Now, listen, I do have a problem with Eastern Health. Okay. I waited two and a half years to get a knee replacement. I finally got my call. I can't get a respite care for my husband. Whether it's a day, night, or two days, I don't know how long it's going to take. There's only one bed. I'm in the Whitburn area. There's only one bed. They tell me that's out in Grand Bank. Now, can you believe that? Oh, my goodness. So uh, you you require knee replacement. You are your husband's primary caregiver, is that correct? Yes, I am. I do have home care. Okay. Uh, and you cannot get respite care in order to travel to wherever it is you've got to go. St. John's. To get your knee replacement. That's right. They told me I got to cancel or pull up with it or wait to the end of the week somebody may die, m- might die. Oh, my goodness. And so uh, how long have you been waiting on a knee replacement? Two and a half years, March past. Two and a half years? Yes. So, so how are you getting around? Uh, not easy. No, you, you need the surgery, I, I take it. Yes, I was on the priority list, and finally I got a call. So um, you have to go into St. John's. So you say you're in the Whitburn area. What are you talking about in Grand Bank, then? Is that where the bed is available for your husband? Yes, that's the only bed available in the plan. Oh, my good. So he's got to travel in order for you to get a knee replacement surgery, and it takes a while to recover from that. Yes, He's got to go out to Grand Bank for who knows how long. That's right. My goodness gracious. So where would you like for him to uh, get that respite care? In St. John's, in Whitburn? Well, surely, goodness, there's something in Presentia Carbonier somewhere. Some- you know, it, it's utterly ridiculous to health care. I mean, Fury and Haiti got Newfoundland sunk to the bottom. So what are you going to do? I'm not going to cancel. I can't. I'm in too much misery. I can't cancel my surgery. And uh, your husband, does he understand the circumstances? Uh, my husband's paralyzed. He can't talk or nothing. He's totally here. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And no family members, I guess, can take on that kind of no. level of care? No. Oh, my goodness gracious, you talk about. So, um, yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, so he's going to have to go to Grand Bank, in other words. That's right. And then the cost of uh, sending him out there and then bringing him back? Yeah, and the co- I'm saving the government thousands and thousands of dollars by keeping my husband home and taking care of him. And they can't even take him for one night. Yeah, there's uh, something wrong there. Yeah. Let me know about it. Yeah. My, my MHA is working on it. See what she's going to do for me. It, it's utterly ridiculous. And I requested my doctor give me two weeks' notice so I could get some support care. And he did give me two weeks' notice. And now one week has passed by already. And so what is your MHA saying? She said she'd get back to me. So she's working on something for you, but I guess she can't magically make beds appear. No. 
There's a, there is lots of beds, but they're not going to open them up. And that's because of staffing issues. Yeah, the cutbacks and everything else. So, and uh, you don't need this added stress now at an already stressful time? No, I'm 80 years old. I tell you, I'm ready for the Waterford. Oh, my goodness. That, that is the truth. Well, I, I uh, wish you some solace. Uh, I hope that your husband is well ca- uh, cared for in the, in the time. Do you know how long it's going to take for you to get they the surgery, recover? They can't tell me. And that's if you don't, you know, undergo any, um, I guess, complications in that. You're going to have to do um, physiotherapy. Does that mean that you have to go back and forth to St. John's for that? Carbonier. Carbonier, still a little bit of a trek? Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, my is right. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I wish you nothing but the best. And I, I thank did. you for raising it publicly. Maybe that'll get some added action. I don't know. Okay, thanks a million. All right, all the bye. best. Okay, bye-bye. Well, oh. that's a heartbreaker. Um, your thoughts on that? By all means, give us a call. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is uh, off for the next little while, enjoying some vacation time. And we've been talking a lot about health care and the like, and we just heard from Anne, who has to undergo a knee replacement surgery. She finally got her called, but she needs respite care for her husband, and there's none available. The only bed available for him, and he requires 24-hour uh, care, is in Grand Bank. Can you just imagine having to send a loved one that far? Far afield, uh, while you undergo um, a knee replacement surgery and the recovery time it takes for that, um, I know someone else um, close to me actually who is uh, from the Carbonear region um, had a medical situation happen, went to Carbonear, and the closest place they could place. Her was in Placentia, and she's been there for months now. Uh, Not a soul that she knows around, you know, the few people who can get out there to visit her. It's just a heartbreaking situation, and uh, there's a lot going on in healthcare, and many, many stories uh, to be told yet. We're going to go now to Rose. You're on the air. Hi, Linda. Hi, Rose. Uh, I just want to uh, uh, talk about the, the lady just phoned in about respite care. Yeah. Well, I'm over here. I'm in Placentia, and 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 over here at at the nursing home, there's a respite. There there always was a respite bed here. And I mean, I can give you the phone number. Uh, yes, you can provide the phone number certainly, and uh, and we can pass that on to Anne if uh, if that's uh, possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, they always have one there, and you know, and for that purpose only. So. Mm-hmm. And and it's a well, it's called Unit One. Yeah. And the number is two two seven. Yeah. Four one. Yeah. Oh four. Four one oh four. Right on, girl. And uh, hopefully she can get her husband in there. That's well, an I awful lot pray, closer. Well, I hope and pray that I hope and pray that it is still there. Yeah. All right, my dear. Okay. We appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I wish her all the best. Certainly. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Um, and uh, we'll pass that on to Anne. Uh, we're going to go now to the caller on line three. Hello. 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 
Hi. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Ernest Eckert, is it? Oh, hello, Ernest. Uh, yeah, I'm a fish harvester on the West Coast. Yeah. Very good. So I just called Linda to talk a little bit about our cod. Got shut down yeah. here in... Uh, Shut down, but Joyce Murray shut it down, the commercial cod fishery. So, mm-hmm. so I'm a commercial fish harvester, so I'm fishing, fish, fishing cod now for about 50 years. So, there you go. So, anyway, so I just shut down, got, you know, got financial impacts on fish harvester on the West Coast and over right? So, so I. Uh, what kind of an impact is it going to have on you? Oh, it's, well, it's it's dollars, you know. So, like every other job, profession across Canada, you know, it's dollars. So, if if it was any other profession, doctors, nurses, or any other profession across Canada, it would definitely be a lot of noise over it. So, but it don't seem to me there's much feedback or much noise about a commercial ground fish shut down here in the Gulf. So, and what? Were but you expecting it? Uh, no, uh, not really, uh, but. Kind of in a way, because it was delayed, delayed, delayed. So, uh, good news is always comes out quick. Bad news comes out late. <laughs> so that's the way it's always been. Eh? So, so you've seen a few changes then over the last five days. Oh decades. yeah, oh yes, right on. So what, you know, the fishery was shut down back in 1993, I think, here in the Gulf, and then for two or three years, and then was reopened, and then shut down again a couple of years after, and then the last say 10, 15 years have been open pretty on a pretty regular basis every year, but. It, it it was as the species started to decline it, it was shut it, it the days was was the time was shortened at the cod so we got down to 12 days a year that's what we got out of it so, so the last couple of years have been 12 12 days a year but we were you know we, we probably end up with two quotas which was six six thousand pound of cod so everybody made a few dollars at nothing big now but it was all part of our income eh? so so we were expected to go out next Monday, and then we got the news yesterday that it, that it shut down for the year. But you know what? Yeah, I don't. Joyce Murray said that yesterday. Federal Minister said that yesterday. Shut down for a year. But I don't think that. I don't think we're going to be open again. I think she just said that keep us quiet. So. So uh, um, preparing for the fishery. How long does that take, and what kind of um, oh, money what? gets involved in that? Oh. The, well, every every year, the fishermen replaced their nets and stuff like that, and so it all costs money. And base it all costs and money. Get get geared up for any fishery, any species. It costs money, right? Gear up fishery. Now we, now we're geared up and we can't go at it. So anyway, so he shut us down. You know why, why didn't he? Why didn't he tell us in January it wasn't going to be no fishery this year? Right so, but fishermen gear up for stuff. You know the same thing as, as the macro fishery in the Gulf. The purse our operators they geared up for you know bot sales that now this year clothes right you know cost cost fishermen a lot of money uh you know uh, for gear up or stuff and then then they come around the blues it's closed forget it forget about now we got 500 ton of cod left in commercial cod fishery left in the water this year because commercial fish harvesters can't go at it you know and we have so now that's 500 ton seals for for the seals so so but 10 years time linda we could have the same conversation and the fishery will not no further it from 10 years from now and and, and i wish you could keep it in the archives because that's exactly what's going to happen so oh it's kept in the archive um, and i i know we're we're just band-aiding the problem we're just, we're just sticking band-aids on it we're, we're not dealing with the real issues see so 
we're, just, we're sticking bandit. We're, so we're shut down commercial fishing. That's the easiest thing under the sun that that could have been done yesterday. That, the easiest thing. I can do anybody can do that. Shut down fishing. But you know what? That's costing fish drivers a lot of money. You know, you know, you know, that's part of my income for the last 50 years. So. Sure. And, so and, and, you say and, that's and the easiest thing they could have done. What's the real issue then? Oh, they could have done something to those seals. Just they got to do something to those seals. It's got to happen. So, so at 10 years time, or, or 20 years time, it's still the same thing. We, we we can't rebuild our stocks on what happened yesterday. Stock cannot and will not happen. That's just the way it is. And uh, and uh, you know, we got 200 harvesters on this coast that fishes cod every year. Every year, they fish commercially, they fishes cod. You know, these 200 harvesters is going to feel the impact of that by closing fisheries. You know, and plus, you know, plus the the macro fishery, these purse trainer operators, you know, they feel the impact of all this too. You know, it's costing thousands and thousands of dollars to get in stuff, but I don't know. It don't seem like anybody cares. So, so what's left in the Gulf then? A bit well, of lobster? We, oh, we got we got a bit of hollow to catch there now, and, and and later July. Let's put it all we got. We got here in the Gulf. We got a, we got a flounder fishery close. We got our lump fishery close. We got our mackerel fishery close, and we got now we got our cod fishery close. Right? There's one, <coughs> and uh, if they're going to be in, uh, rebuild the, the fish stocks, they're going to have to do a better approach than what they're doing right now. So I don't know how they're going to do it, but they're going to have to do a lot better than what they're doing now because it ain't going to happen that way it's going to. That's the easiest thing you could do. The easiest, the simplest thing you could do is shut down, shut down fish harvesters. You know, but, you know, we've got 500 ton now for the seals. That's what we got there, for the seals now. So, so who knows what the stocks is going to be like in two or three years' time, right? So I, I don't know. Ernest, I appreciate your call. Um, all the best to you now. Okay, very good. Thank you. Have a nice day, Linda. All right, you too. Yeah, bye. Yeah, bye. Uh, oops, cut myself off. Ernest there um, lamenting the closure of the uh, Gulf Cod fishery, um, saying that, you know, uh, you cannot build the stocks on what happened yesterday. Um, your thoughts on that? Give us a call. We have uh, 15 minutes left in the show. We have uh, room for some callers. Now is your chance to give us a call. Anything you've heard you want to talk, uh, weigh in, do so. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. And you know, the world is an interesting place, isn't it? Uh, and you wonder who makes these declarations and how it all works. But Dave tells me, uh, Dave, who is our Google master, he says that the internet is um, telling him today that uh, it is National Mechanical Pencil Day. <laughs> now, believe it or not, I've had a mechanical pencil. <laughs> but are they even relevant anymore? I mean, has the internet uh, not replaced the mechanical pencil <laughs> for uh, its purposes? <laughs> anyway, National Mechanical Pencil Day. Here's a day I can get on board with. It is also National Apple Turnover Day. There you go. I know what I'm having for me lunch now. <laughs> Apple Turnover Day. Woo! Every day should be Apple Turnover Day. All right, we're going to go now to line one. Terry Ryan. Hello, Terry. How are you? Island, a long time since I've spoken to you. It is indeed. And the last time I remember speaking to you, our ropes were being chopped at the wharf in Valley Field uh, during the raw material uh, fiasco a number of years ago regarding crab. Oh, gosh, yes, that's going back a ways. 
<laughs> I got a lot more gray hair since then, have you? I refuse to respond to that remark. Um, <laughs> Terry, what's up? Uh, I'm just calling to give an update <clears throat> regarding uh, the shrimp. It's in relation to the shrimp history. I don't know how familiar you are with it, because Patty is... Uh, I've been talking to Patty Daly a number of times, but you probably are aware of it. That, well, you obviously are aware that buyers in Newfoundland would not buy shrimp this year at the spring negotiated price. Yeah, it's a strange, and, strange year for all of that. Yeah, so then uh, a while ago now, the pricing panel established a summer shrimp price of uh, average price of 90 cents, and uh, there's been very little activity on that one uh, so far. The only boats that have Gonic fishing is two or three from the Labrador coast that sells to the Labrador Shrimp Company, and uh, I understand there's some from the full-on co-op underway to shrimp brands today as well. And might be one or two, three all boats, but it's very limited. But uh, anyway, as you are probably aware or not aware, uh, I, I my enterprise or my son's enterprise uh, did not sit around and wait. They couldn't. They've already taken two trips of shrimp to Nova Scotia, and uh, they're out. Uh, on their third trip now, and that one will be going to Nova Scotia as well. And uh, just sort of information of you and or the listeners that might be interested. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's working out well. Uh, it's a half long steam. It's uh, it's uh, four times, almost four times, three and a half times the distance each way on a trip than it would be to land in Newfoundland. Uh, but uh, it's still working out, even with the additional fuel expense and everything else, because of the price we're getting paid and how you get paid up there. And uh, uh, so, what's the difference know, what's in the in the price? Then it has to be pretty dramatic for you to make that kind of a steam. Uh, well, at the time we started it, the price in Newfoundland was zero, zero cents per pound because nobody would buy. Uh, so for for our first trip, it was zero cents in Newfoundland or. Uh, well, well over a dollar, well over a dollar too in Nova Scotia. So that was a, that was a no-brainer. That one. On the second trip, uh, the price in Newfoundland uh, was 90 cents average price versus well over a dollar in Nova Scotia. Uh, and uh, now we're in a kind of unique situation too. We've got a vessel. My son's got a vessel that do it. It's got fuel capacity and it's got carrying capacity and it can pan its shrimp which means it lasts much longer than shrimp put in bags and there's not a lot of boats in Newfoundland have that option. Right, so you've got the technology and the uh, and the mechanical power to do it. So um, why aren't if, if the buyers are buying in Nova Scotia, uh, why aren't they buying here? What's the What's that? What's the difference here? Well, I, I can't speak on behalf of the buyers in Newfoundland except to say that I have become somewhat educated in some of the differences since because for the second trip, I actually, I, well, I went to Nova Scotia to meet the boat first trip too. The second trip, uh, I was actually on a, on the boat and uh, uh, the the the, the probably uh, you, you we're not comparing apples to apples when we compare fish prices and processing expenses in Newfoundland versus the Maritimes. 
Uh, we're not comparing apples to apples. The, the cost of processing, the cost of collecting and processing and marketing is, is much less in the Maritimes than it is here in Newfoundland. It's, you know, it's, it's because of geography. The marketing aspect of it is because of geography. We live on an island. Uh, the collection thing in Nova Scotia, you have to land at the plant. They do little or no, very little trucking in Nova Scotia where we're landing. Uh, so they don't have that all that trucking expense, right? Like in Newfoundland, my God, to our buyer here will send a truck uh, five hours drive to pick up 200 pound of codfish or to pick up a, a 500 pound of squid or 5,000 pound of shrimp. <laughs> Uh, every you know uh, a lot of landing sites and so on. So, and the pro the the actual plant expense is probably not significantly different because I mean the labor rates and the plant workers making those Scotia I would imagine are comparable, might even be slightly higher. I don't know than plant workers make per hour in Newfoundland, but the collection and the marketing, the marketing in particular, is different and. Uh, so they, I think that's some of the reason why they can pay more. Plus, they don't do a lot of payroll expense up there. They do some. They're doing it for, in our case. Uh, so, so we're not comparing apples to apples. When we, we hear somebody say, oh, I get 90 cents in Newfoundland, you're getting a dollar whatever up in Nova Scotia. That might be true, but there's other factors involved. And what are those other factors? Well, like I just explained to you, the, the, the processors up there, the buyers don't spend as much money, in my opinion, on collecting the product. Uh, it's more of the fisherman's expense. Uh, they don't spend as much money on servicing, servicing the fishermen as most Newfoundland buyers do, so they get less expense there. And they don't spend as much money, in, it seems, anyway, on marketing. Uh, so, so they say, so, uh, you know, so they, that's some of the reason it seems that they can pay a little better price up front, right? Right. So what's going on, though? I mean, because this is not unique to this year, it's, and it seems to be getting worse rather than getting better. The, the fish price setting panel sets the prices for all the various species, and it looks like there's a real power play happening here between harvesters and uh, plant operators. And um, there seems to always be an argument on one side or the other. The price is too high, the price is too low. Um, so how do we resolve this? Is, is there a better system that we can set up than the fish price setting panel, or is there something else going on? Well, the, the, the price setting panel is broken. It's, it's a broken system. It's just not working anymore. And you can, you can fix that in two ways, in my opinion. You can either dissolve the price-setting panel or you can amend the government, provincial government, that is, can amend their legislation to make the price-setting panel more workable. And one, one amendment that would need to be made if, it's, if they decide to follow that route, but I don't think they're going to because the provincial government, in my opinion, don't even know we got a wild fishery in this land. But... Um, the, they can amend the legislation to give the pricing panel the authority to pick a sweet spot somewhere in between the two final offers, if need be. Sometimes that, that's not necessary. Sometimes, you know, the prices are close enough, the final offers, that either, picking either one will result in a fishery. But that's not happening lately. The prices are too far apart, and they don't have the authority to pick a sweet spot. I mean, the pricing panel acknowledged that in their uh, write-up on the last uh, – 
decision on, on, on summer shrimp prices. They, they even acknowledged in their, in their brief that uh, neither, neither price we're going to pick here is going to result in fishery. They were right. Yeah? So that's one thing. And the other thing, of course, they can just dissolve the pricing panel altogether uh, uh, or, or, or they could amend their legislation and say to the buyers, listen, if this panel comes down with a price that's a fair reflection of market value, uh, having done due diligence of the, you know, the, the cost of processing in Newfoundland and so on, uh, that if the buyers still refuse, just for the sake of refusing, then uh, make it a condition of the processing license that uh, it's going to be reviewed and perhaps suspended. So do you foresee any of those changes happening, or are we going to continue on like this with no, for all intents and purposes, no shrimp fishery this year? Well, to answer your question there, I'm like my father, who used to say when he, when he fished, and uh, if there was a bad year, uh, he would always say, I'm living in hope, but I might die in despair. Uh, meaning that uh, I, we can always live in hope that the provincial government is going to do something, but I... Uh, I think we might die in despair with this government we got now. Terry, Ryan, we're out of time. I thank you for your call. Thank you very much, Linda, for your time. All righty. And we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening.